2016 has just been an incredibly difficult year so far. I don't know how it's been for y'all, but uh, man, we've just had one thing after another. What we do is we find that all the things that have happened in the first three months of this year have kind of sucked all the oxygen out of the room, and we're just now getting to things that we'd hoped to have been getting to in January, and one of them is a new website that we're working on, and uh, whenever you work on a, a project like that, it really causes you to focus. It causes you to really redefine things. And so that's been going through my mind over the last few weeks. How do we represent ourselves? How do we really tell people what we do? And then we added a new board member to our board who happens to be an engineer. Have you ever added an engineer to anything that you do in a group? It's really an interesting experience. He's got everything all wireframed and diagrammed in color and all these things. It's, it's great. It's Doug right here. Doug. Yeah, say hey, Doug. I love the way Doug's mind works, but man, he is precise and he really holds your feet to the fire, which is exactly what we need, even if it's annoying, you know? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> it's been great, though, because Doug has pointed out that he's been here over a year, I think, uh, and, and just has really dug in, Doug. He's dug in. Um, and yet he was not really clear on what the effect does. What does it do? What's its reach? What's its purpose? What's its mission and vision? And um, he made it very clear that, um, that we hadn't done a good job of getting that message out. So as we were going through this process, both with the, with the board meeting, with the website, you know, I thought maybe it would be a good thing to do something a little different today and talk to you about who we are, what we do, and why we do it. I mean, it's, it's so integral to everything that we're about, and yet if it's not clear, then it's something we need to get out better, and it'll give you a little look into what's coming on the, on the website when we get there. Um, in other words, we got some splaining to do, you know, and I wanted to kind of give a big picture of that who, what, and why. Um, someone wrote in to us by email um, not too long ago, and I wanted to read to you what they said, because this is indicative of a comment that we get a lot when people come here uh, to the effect, either from other churches or from outside of any faith tradition, um, or after having been away from church for a long time uh, because of difficulties they faced or faith crises or whatever. But uh, this person writes, there's a real wow, he puts in, in quotation marks, a real something that is so radical, so different, so hopeful about the effect. Before coming to the effect, I was discouraged. I perceived God as a deity in the image of the Ayatollah Khomeini. Or worse, because anyone who would torment someone in hell forever would be almost evil. After I came, I saw God differently. I saw there is love, acceptance. I learned to be more loving and accepting, more at peace understanding the Paschal Mystery and transformation. And for those of you who don't know about the Paschal Mystery, it's the, the, the shape of the journey that is repeated over and over in Scripture. Jesus literally died during, during Pesach, during the Passover, uh, stayed in the grave for three days and rose again. That descent and that ascent is what we're talking about, that moving into the difficult times as a prerequisite, as necessary to being able to take the ascent on the back. So he says, began understanding the Paschal Mystery and the transformation that comes after it. I also learned that I did not have to have it all figured out in my head. Just trust, experience, one day at a time, being in the moment, being in the present. 
or in his presence. We need to do more to really send this message, get this message across. And so I was thinking, what message? Because a lot of times we get comments like this, but if we haven't really been able to put down in a logical form what's going on and, and why we're doing what we're doing, then it's, it's going to be difficult for all of us to get on the, the path, get on that same sheet of music and move forward with one accord and one voice. So I want to read you just a little bit of, of the first draft of what I think is going to be on the website, but it'll probably change a million times before we go. But, and anyway, who are we? Who are we? We are a community of imperfect people working together to find the emotional recovery and the spiritual transformation that is the effect of God's love by unlearning, limiting perceptions, beliefs, and compulsions and engaging the transforming way of Jesus. Everyone is recovering from something. Any unfinished business in our lives, trauma, unforgiveness, fear-based perceptions, fosters compulsive behavior and keeps us from connecting spiritually and physically by hiding our real identity and our meaning and our purpose. Starting with complete acceptance of everyone right where they are, we help seekers engage their own journey by getting involved in community and building the trust we all need to find the only way through, the way of living life that Jesus called kingdom, non-religiously understood from a first century Hebrew point of view. So if that's who we are, then what do we do? Well, nothing changes in our lives until we act repeatedly in a changed direction. Okay? So we practice change and point out changed direction with daily and weekly worship gatherings, workshops, studies, 12-step meetings, counseling and mentoring sessions, referral services, social events. We create physical and spiritual recovery programs that can connect with any person's needs. And such programs work at two levels. First, to address a person's physical and emotional stability. Clinical, financial, relational, professional, anything that distracts from working on the second level. True spiritual formation, centered around the contemplative way of life, defined by an original Hebrew understanding of the message of Jesus. We don't tell anyone what to think or believe. We model and teach engagement in a personal and communal spiritual journey that allows people to experience their own worthiness of connection and acceptance and a freedom from underlying fears that brings real meaning and purpose into focus. Why do we do this? Well, the, refe- the effect came out of recovery. All the people that founded the effect were working in recovery previously. I have no addiction background. But as I began working in recovery, what I realized with big neon letters across my brain was that everyone is recovering from something. Everyone is recovering from something. We've all had hurts. We've all had traumas. As children, we found out we weren't the center of the universe. Ah, what a a revelation, you know? People could leave us, abandon us. They could neglect us. Things would not go our way. Life isn't fair. From the minor to the major, we've all been hurt enough that if there's any unfinished business there, if we haven't dealt with that in a healthy way, moved through it, then we're still dealing with it in a compulsive way. 
It's what we do as human beings. And if we haven't turned, turned to substances, then we're turned to process addictions, something that we do, whether it's overwork or gambling or spending or whatever it happens to be. Religion can be a compulsive reaction to unfinished business if we use it incorrectly. And so all these things are there. And I realize that to admit my own personal powerlessness, my own brokenness, my own imperfection over these areas in my life was what opened the door to something new, to a possibility of change. And as I continued to work and I continued to speak to recovery groups, I realized that Jesus' message was always the way through. No matter what the compulsion du jour was, no matter what the drug of choice was, it didn't really matter. The dynamics in a person's life were essentially the same. And the way through was always this way of Jesus, this way of living and relating and loving, this good news, this kingdom that he was talking about. We just had to understand it correctly from this first century point of view to take it out of the intellectual realm, to take it out of the doctrinal or theological realm and bring it down to day-to-day moments where we could really use it in all of our connections. So what are we trying to do? If we're starting from brokenness, then we have to start from this place. We have to start from this place of recovery in the broadest sense. It has nothing to do now with just substance abuse. It's the broadest sense of all of us trying to recover. Jesus calls it transformation. How do we get there? So for the website, I was trying to work out four specific headlines that, that would start to give us a sense of this process. And I had some slides up there, and I don't know what happened to them. <laughs> it was one of those mornings. The first one, if you look in your bulletins, because they're, they're laid out there. The first one is finding acceptance. Finding acceptance. So as a group, when somebody comes in, there are four things that we want to help foster them. There are four things that we want to do ourselves in concert. Remember, we're a community of imperfect people doing this together. I don't have it all figured out. I am not supposed to be some paragon of this. You know, I play a role here, but I'm in the boat with everybody else. We all are in the boat together, rowing, trying to get to this place that Jesus calls kingdom. Finding acceptance. We see that as absolutely fundamental. Just as powerlessness is fundamental to the process of submission that takes us into the rest of the process. Acceptance is fundamental to the healing that we're going to find along the way of this process. We absolutely have to understand this. You know, Augustine said back in the 4th or 5th century that in essential things, we should have unity. In non-essential things, we should have liberty. And in all things, we should have charity didn't really solve much because no one can agree on what the essential things are. And because we hold the essential things that we think are essential so dear, the charity goes right out the window. But what are the essential things? What are the things that we... Dr. Erico was here last week and he raised a little bit of hackles and and stirred up the uh, silt at the bottom of the aquarium uh, in two particular ways. One of them was when he was talking about the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves and fishes and he explained it from an Aramaic point of view rationally, not supernaturally, saying that people stored their food inside their cloaks and the miracle was that they all shared with each other and that's what actually multiplied the loaves and fishes. 
But the miracle was internal. It was, a, it was a spiritual turn of heart for a whole group of people rather than something that actually happened physically. And then I saw a lot, lot of people around him afterwards peppering him with questions. Now, what about this? And what about that? And of course, I got a bunch of questions myself. And the second one was, he didn't quite say there wasn't a hell, but he came pretty close. You all remember that one too? And that raised a lot of questions. What are the essential things that we need to look at and deal with and have unity over And what are the things that we can have liberty with? Is it absolutely essential that all the miracles of Jesus happen literally as they appear in the New Testament? Or could they have spiritual significance? You know, I don't know which way it works. Were they trying to be metaphorical? Were they trying to show a spiritual change of heart, but they wrote it in this way? Or are they literal? I have no problem with literal miracles. You know, they seem to be still happening today. But different Christians look at that different ways. There is a huge, broad spectrum of Christian thought here that encompasses many different ideas. Do we need to part ways with people that don't believe in literal miracles? Either way, the love of God remains firm. The love of God remains completely absolute, whether the miracle is internal or external. And so to me, that's where we can exercise some liberty. When it comes to the question of hell, boy, there'd be people who would be right there saying absolutely needs to be a literal physical hell. Well, Dr. Erica was completely correct in saying there is no word in the Old or New Testament that means what we mean when we say hell. There's five or six words that are translated as hell, have been translated as hell, but they don't mean hell the way we mean it. Yes, there is a place of torment. It's called Gehenna. And the fire burns and the worm dieth not and all those images that we see there. But the fires there were understood to be fires of purification and not of punishment. In other words, there was the idea that based on the person, him or herself, could move through those purification fires and get to the other side. Kind of like Catholic purgatory. That was the concept of Gehenna. Does that mean there's no hell the way we understand hell? I don't know. I, tru- I personally believe there is a hell, but God doesn't put anyone there. We put ourselves there. Why? Because the absolute essential fundamental that I will die on the bridge for is that God's love is absolute, that God never leaves or forsakes. God never gives up on any one of us, ever. Always drawing, always bringing toward ourselves. If we are in hell, it's because we put ourselves there. That is a very important point. C.S. Lewis said the gates are locked from the inside, trying to get to the same understanding. Now, if you believe in a literal hell in the the traditional Christian way, but you still are able to conceive of and, and trust the absolute love of God, then there's nothing broke. Don't fix it. See, we're not trying to come down here doctrinally. We're not trying to force any doctrinal edge. What we're trying to do is get to a loving experiential knowing of the nature of our God that Jesus was trying to get across to us. He was trying to get us to understand, trying to get us to understand this good news. He called it good news. It translates as gospel, but what it means is good news. It was a central message. It's what he always led with. It was everything. Now, what is this gospel? What is this good news? Well, as I was growing up as a Catholic... It was right in the liturgy. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. That doxology. That was the original gospel. And that's fine. There's that Paschal mystery again that we talked about. But why 
is that good news. Why is it good news that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again? It's good news because it is underscored by this absolute, ferocious, radical, pure, unconditional love of God that withholds absolutely nothing. His own life, his own son. However you visualize that, the good news is there is no bad news. God loves us radically, fiercely. G.K. Chesterton and Brendan Manning picked up on it, called it the ferocious love of God. What other words can you use to describe something that is so other than what we are used to experiencing, that has no prerequisite, has no degree? How do we describe something like that? You know, If we read Luke 4.18, this is Jesus coming right out of the desert, landing in his hometown of Nazareth, goes into the synagogue, picks up the Isaiah scroll, and he reads. And what he's giving us is his mission statement. At Luke 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to deliver those who are crushed. And he's quoting directly from Isaiah there, but he's applying it to himself. This is his mission. It's really always been the mission of the prophet. But that first line there is the one that we need to take a look at. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And the poor is an unfortunate translation here. If you look in Isaiah, it's to the meek or to the afflicted. And just as Luke calls it the poor here, just as in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, That's the way Matthew reads. In Luke, it's blessed are the poor. But we can infer there that it's the same idea. What Luke is talking about is that Jesus is going to be preaching good news to those who are afflicted, to those who are broken, to those who are poor in spirit, which means they know that they're powerless and they see themselves at ground level with everyone else. They're not domineering. They're not arrogant. They're humble. For those people, the good news is exactly the same as healing the brokenhearted, proclaiming release to captives, recovering sight to the blind, and delivering those who are crushed. This is Hebrew poetry, giving us the same idea over and over again and just deepening the idea and the understanding. The good news is you are loved and you are accepted right where you sit now, breathing. And for no other reason. There is nothing else that you need to do. There is nothing else you could possibly do. All these images in Isaiah that Jesus reads here in Luke and Matthew and Mark are only possible in the fact of absolute love. This good news that he's talking about. You see, if we don't get this, if we don't understand this, we're never going to be able to rise above simple fear, above the intrusion and the absolute nature of legality of the law will never rise above simple obedience. We'll never really realize that what God is telling us is that we're family. We're not employees. We're family. And if we don't get that fundamental truth, if we don't understand how radically, radically accepted we are, how in the world are we going to take any next steps? 
How are we going to go any further than this? I wanted to read a little bit from Brene Brown, who is a sociologist, and she's approaching this from a completely secular point of view. But listen to her words. Listen to what she found after 10 years of research, talking to thousands of people, getting hundreds of letters and interviews and everything that she did. She writes that I started with connection. Because by the time you're a social worker for 10 years, what you realize is that connection is why we're here. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. This is what it's all about. The ability to feel connected is why we're here. But very quickly, I ran into this unnamed thing that absolutely unraveled connection in a way that I didn't understand or had never seen. And it turned out to be shame. And shame is really easily understood as the fear of disconnection. Is there something about me that if other people know it or see it, that I won't be worthy of connection? It's universal. We all have it. This, I'm not good enough, rich enough, beautiful enough, smart enough, promoted enough. It was excruciating vulnerability. This idea of, in order for connection to happen, we have to allow ourselves to be seen really seen. And that is terrifying for many of us. Here's what I can tell you it boils down to. And this may be one of the most important things that I have ever learned in the decade of doing this research. What shame is, how it works. If I roughly took the people I interviewed and divided them into people who really have a sense of worthiness, they already have that sense. That's what this comes down to, a sense of worthiness, who have a strong sense of love and belonging and folks who struggle for it, folks who are always wondering if they're good enough, there was only one variable that separated them. People who have a strong sense of love and belonging believe they're worthy of love and belonging. That's it. They believe they're worthy. The only thing that keeps us out of connection is our fear that we're not worthy of connection. And what do these people have in common who believe they're worthy? What they had in common was a sense of courage. These folks had, very simply, the courage to be imperfect. They were willing to let go of what they thought they should be in order to be who they were. You absolutely have to do that for connection. Otherwise, your shields are always up. Otherwise, your defenses are always drawn. How can you really connect until all of that lays down and you move into that vulnerable place where you can really get hurt. But imagine the alternative, a life without ever being hurt is a life that has never, ever risked connection, kingdom, transformation, all these things that Jesus is talking about. The other thing these people had in common was this. They fully embraced vulnerability. They believed that what made them vulnerable made them beautiful. They didn't talk about vulnerability being comfortable, nor did they really talk about it being excruciating. They just talked about it being necessary. They talked about the willingness to say, I love you first. The willingness to do something where there are no guarantees. The willingness to breathe through waiting for the doctor to call after your mammogram. They were willing to invest in a relationship that may or may not work out. They thought this was fundamental. And so do we. We think it's absolutely fundamental. This sense of worthiness, this belief, idea at least enough, 
that you are already worthy of this connection, of this love, is the ticket in the door of kingdom. Without it, you cannot enter. Not because it's being withheld from you, not because it's being blocked, but because you can't get in with all your armor. Kingdom is pure connection. Kingdom is the realization of the embrace that is God's love. And as long as we don't think we're worthy of it, it simply won't be available to us. We won't realize it. We won't see it. We'll walk right past it on the way to something that seems more affirming to us. This is why the good news is always preached first. Always first. Lead with the good news, Jesus says. Right? And what did Francis say? Francis of Assisi. He said, preach the good news continuously. Use words where necessary. In other words, you live it. If it isn't in you, how in the world do you have any chance of leading someone else to it? How can you do it? The means we use must match the ends we seek. If the ends we seek are the perfect connection of kingdom, then we have to at least believe we're worthy of it now in order to be able to walk in that direction. And so we here at The Effect model good news first as best as we can. We truly believe we're already worthy. And even at those times where we get knocked down and we begin to wonder again because we do all the time, these last 90 days have been a lot of wondering about that kind of thing. But somewhere deep in our core, we know we are and we just keep coming back. And we have each other holding us accountable and helping us to get back on track and at least accepting us even if we're starting to feel unacceptable and ugly and unlovable again, this is what we do. And so everyone here who walks in this door at the effect is accepted as they are, even Baptists, as they are. They can come in. They can do it. My little nod to Franklin. Everyone is accepted. Addicts and alcoholics, rich or poor, gay or straight, Christian, agnostic. You can smoke here. You can bring your dogs here. This is the kind of environment that we need to maintain if we're going to have the hope or the prayer of helping people find that acceptance, find the fact that they're already worthy of acceptance. We have to, ex- have to completely accept them right here, right now. And you know what? We can't do it with a time limit either. Because I've experienced that in other churches. Yeah, come as you are. Come on in. But I'm watching the clock here. And if you don't clean up your act, you know, then we're going to have to do something. You know, it's not like that. You are accepted here. If you want to be here, you can be here. People have come here drunk. People have come here high. We don't kick them out unless they cannot maintain themselves and they wreck everyone else's. You know, in the, in the experience... In the last nine years that we've been doing this, we've only kicked one person out, ever. Only one person has ever been ejected. Now, she was ejected three times. (laughs) And we had to call the cops the third time, but she would come in high and she would just go crazy and and no one else could have an experience. That is the prerequisite. If there's no abuse, if you can allow everyone else to have a worship experience, then we want you here. Where else would we want you to be? This mirrors to our thinking and and to everything that we read exactly what Jesus did. He was criticized. He was called a drunkard and a glutton because he hung out with these people on the other side of the tracks. But he simply said, hey, where would the doctor be but with the sick? Now, we don't even make those kind of judgments about who's sick or not. Just come on in because we're all sick. (laughs) 
We've got to be able to see this. We've got to be able to get to this place. This belief, this idea is the first step that just we can get to this place. You know, Einstein, when he was asked in in the 50s what the most important thing his work as a theoretical physicist could teach him, you know what he said? You know what he wanted to know? Whether the universe was a friendly place or not. Whether the universe was a friendly place or not. And if you think about what he's talking about there, he's saying beyond and beneath and above and transcending everything that we can see and measure and taste and smell in our visible universe, is there something else? Is there another power? Is there another force? And beyond that just existence, does that force know us as we are and can be known? And beyond that, does that force have our best interests at heart? That's a friendly universe. And what I can say is if you can't answer affirmatively to that question, then your life is going to be marked by fear. Your life is going to be marked by stress, by anxiety. Because if you for a moment don't think that you are going to survive this thrill ride, this is the greatest thrill ride ever invented. But if you look out and think you see a section of track missing and your scared enjoyment of the ride turns to pure terror, if you don't think that at the end of the ride the car is going to come to a nice stop, and mom and dad are waiting with the cotton candy to take you home, then how in the world could your life be experienced in any other way? This is what the good news does for us. The good news lets us know that as scary as this ride of life is, the track is secure. The track is continuous. At the end of this, daddy is going to be waiting at the cotton candy to take us home. We have to know that. Or we will never be free enough to enter kingdom. We will never be free enough to love as Jesus loved. We will never ever be able to trust This is where Jesus is going. So this first, finding acceptance, absolutely fundamental. The next one, getting involved. Nothing changes until we act, repeatedly. Mark 1.15, Jesus coming out party in Mark, starting his, his public ministry. He says, the waiting is over. The kingdom is here. Repent and believe the good news. Believe the gospel. Now repent and believe. Two terms that we need to understand better. Repent doesn't mean an act of contrition. It doesn't mean feeling sorry for what you've done, feeling guilty about something, as we connote it in English. It means a change of direction. It means you're going this way, and now you're going this way. You're going to move in a new direction. And believe in either the Greek or the Aramaic is never, ever divorced from the idea of trust. It's never understood just as a mental agreement or a mental assent to a concept in your head. It has moved down to where you actually trust it. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, change directions and trust that the good news is real. The kingdom is now. You can be part of it. You can realize it in your own life. If you change directions from all the obsessive-compulsive junk that you're doing from a fear-based life, And just trust that there's nothing you need to do to gain God's love. This is this idea of getting involved. We have to actually move in. We have to change directions, move into community. Let's read John 8, 
31 and 32. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Here's the idea of continuing in my word, and word gives us another mental image of just an intellectual concept. But word here, both in the Greek and the Aramaic, again, is so much more inclusive. Whether it's Lagos or whether it's Melka in the Aramaic, it's 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 huge. It's everything. It's everything that comprises Jesus' way of living life. It's everything that he's about. It's his entire essence. It's the way he lives and loves. He says, if you continue in this, if you change directions and start living this way, then you're my followers, and not a moment before. And you will know a truth that will make you free. Free of what? Free from the fear of disconnection that's keeping us from connected. It all connects this way. Without action, without changing the way of living, into Jesus' way of living, we have no more progress. And we said before that we're non-religious. And by that we mean that we're non-intellectual, we're non-doctrinally based, where we're just hanging on to certain concepts as being a dividing, you know, dividing rod between right and wrong, that, that we move into the practice that Jesus was talking about. And religion gets a bad rap. Now we say non-religious because it relieves a lot of people who have chips on their shoulder about the way that they perceive religion or the way that they have experienced religion. But religion is absolutely necessary if we're going to do this thing that Jesus is asking us to do. Because no spiritual journey happens in a vacuum. It doesn't free float. It is grounded in something that is taking place viscerally, physically, between people, in the real world. A few weeks ago I was talking about the five things that we have got to have in any program that's going to take us spiritually where we want to go, or physical recovery. We need to have community, and in the community we need to have accountability. We need to have structure, and within the structure we need to have discipline, something that we actually show up to day after day and we actually do within a group that knows us well enough, that we have opened up well enough to, that they can help us, they can put the guardrails on the way for us and tell us when we're moving too far right or left and help guide us back. And then we need service. We need the ability to complete the circuit and give back. Those five things are what religion is all about. When it's done well, I know it's not often done well. But if you don't have those pieces in your life, community, accountability, structure, discipline, service, then you're kidding yourself about moving along a spiritual journey. You can't just do it in your head. You can't just do it, just prayer in your closet. Jesus is showing us that it's part of life. It's everything to do with living out the effect of your prayer life into the lives of others. This is what it's all about. Spiritual life can't be accomplished in a vacuum. We must practice it in some real way. Which leads us to the next heading. Building trust. To practice relationship repeatedly gives us the repeated experience of connection. And trust is experiential. You can't just will yourself to trust. We trust something because it has been repeatedly proven to us a person or a thing, to be trustworthy. How do you really trust anything? Because your anxiety drops. Your worry drops. Your constant compulsive thinking about something drops. 
If you think about a boyfriend, a girlfriend, husband, or wife that you have not trusted, what are you doing? When you're hacking into their Facebook account, into their email, you're following around, you're getting that little uh, GPS thing going so you can see if they're really where they're supposed to be, but you never stop thinking, you never stop planning, you never stop obsessing about the things that you don't trust because it's all about fear. Contrast that with someone you do trust who says they're going to be meeting you at a certain place at a certain time and you know you never even have to call them to check and see if they're going to be there because they just will. Because they always have been. Trust and anxiety are inversely proportional. As one goes up, the other goes down. If you really are building trust, your anxiety is going to be dropping. Your fear is going to be dissipating. You're going to feel the difference. You're going to know that you know that something fundamental has changed in your life. That you are experiencing. Your attitudes are different. And when the difficult times come, they still rock your world, but you're able to deal with them in a different way. Because underneath all of the hurt and all of the things that life throws at us, there is a sense, a growing sense, of trust that everything is somehow going to be okay. That the track is still there. At the end of this ride, the car is going to come to a nice stop. This is what the practice, the religious practice, whatever religion you're talking about, it can be your own personal thing, but it has to have those elements to it. And so we get to the point where we can actually start to enjoy the ride. I mean, you enjoy the ride. When you get off, and the first thing you want to do is, let's do it again. Yeah. Now you know you're trusting the ride, right? You didn't just have to quite muddle through it one time. And this takes us to the next one, and the last one. Living the effect of God's love. This is the goal. This is the meaning of the effect. This is why we chose this name. We need to live the effect of God's love. And what is that? What is the effect of God's love? I skipped the passage, didn't I? About trust. <laughs> Do not worry then say, what will we eat, what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And the main word I wanted to focus on in this, about trust, was Gentiles. It's an unfortunate translation there. Because the word, what the word really means is someone who's not from our tribe. Someone who doesn't know our ways. And most importantly, someone who doesn't know our God. The other, you see. Because the one who doesn't know our God doesn't know how cared they are for. Doesn't realize they don't have to worry about all this stuff, that somehow it's going to be okay. How do you get to the place where you can start to trust? You've got to get to know our God. got to get to know our God's ways. So we start to understand more and more that we can trust. And then we can move into living the effect of that love. What is the effect of God's love? Let's read John 4.19. First John 4.19 so I don't forget and move it away. We love because he first loved us. I like to end almost every prayer with that phrase to remind us our love is the effect of God's love. Do you see how that works? We can't love unless we were first loved. If we love, it's because He first loved us. We are living the effect of God's love when we are loving as as God loves. This is it. 
Our love is the effect of God's love, the very fact of it, that it exists, that any love exists, is the effect of God's love. That's what we're trying to live. Look at that last quote there. Bit of a brain tease, I think. Angelus Silesius wrote, If God stopped thinking of me, he would cease to exist. Just think about that for a second. He normally would say, if God stopped thinking of me, I would cease to exist, right? He said, no, if God stopped thinking of me, he would cease to exist. And that might be really messing with some of your theology. You know? Is that really true? What's the point he's trying to make? I don't know if it's true. But what's the point he's trying to make? The point he's trying to make is that God is love. God is acceptance. God is forgiveness and redemption and deliverance. He is those things. If he stopped being any one of those things, if he stopped thinking of me, he would cease to exist at least as himself, as what his nature is. Do you see how fundamental this goes for some people? Someone who writes that is someone who has absolutely gotten to the core of believing their own worthiness in God's eyes. Knows enough about God and His ways to be able to make that radical a statement that sounds blasphemous to so many of us. But that's who God is. He is this thing that we call love. So radical. We will never believe or trust God's love until we witness it in ourselves. When the love is leading us for the enemy, the love is leading us for the one who annoys us, the one who is leading us for the one who is an active adversary in our lives, undeserving of any of our consideration. But when we consider that person anyway, we have the first inkling that that is how God loves us, who we consider undeserving and unworthy. And then it starts to change. We start to realize it's possible. If I can do it, then God had to do it first. Because any love that I show is only because He loved me first. In the same way. Am I God's enemy? Well, I'm certainly not His friend all the time. I certainly work at cross purposes with Him. I certainly don't have the belief or the trust or the faith to be able to move forward at times. And yet that never stops the stream of love that God has given us. As we were accepted without prerequisite, when we start to accept, then we realize this thing is really true. Matthew 10, 8. Freely you have received, now freely give. Because when we freely give, that's how we realize that it's flowing through us. That it didn't originate with us, it's flowing through us from another source. Living the effect is the freedom from fear to live, to choose, to love as God loves and chooses and lives. When I started this journey, I had such a different idea of what it was all about. The journey has turned out to be nothing that I anticipated, nothing that I thought I was going to be going through. And this is what we're trying to get across to everyone who comes through these doors. The journey is not what we think. It's not a journey of acquisition. It's a journey of release, of letting go, not of bringing things in. We don't start from a place of lack something that has to come in in order for us to be good enough to be with God or to be part of God's family. We start with the abundance that Jesus talks about, that it's already here. I spent 10, 12 years chasing knowledge, chasing obedience, 
chasing certain emotional responses, chasing supernatural phenomena, chasing contemplation, silence and solitude, trying to find what it was that I needed so that my life didn't hurt so much. And even when I finally get to contemplation, which is supposed to be the release of all those other desires and all those other compulsions, I realized that I was engaging in silence and solitude in order to get knowledge and emotional response and so on and so forth. I was doing it all wrong. I tried to live like a monk in the city. I kept my apartment completely silent. I had my routines, my own liturgy, my own way of, of, of living every single day, and I came back to it, and I really wasn't getting anywhere because I was still looking for these things to bring in. And when I finally started to enjoy silence for itself, and not as a means to any other end, I finally started to get a sense of who this God was, something about His ways that started to change me from the inside out. It took a long time. But I didn't have anybody. I didn't have a place like this that I could go where I could be reinforced, where I could have community and accountability and structure and discipline and service. I didn't have that. The forces in my life were actually running counter to everything that was starting to bubble up from the inside out as I spent more time in silence. And so the effect is hopefully this environment, this place, where if you want to, you can come and you can be reinforced in a journey that you never anticipated, a journey that feels so different than the one that you think you're going to be taking. You know, if there is anything that you receive here, that the effect as being a part of our community, may it please be the good news. If it's just that one thing that you get here, a sense of absolute acceptance, Imperfect as it might be from each one of us, but as a window into a perfect acceptance that can only be imperfectly reflected to you because it's coming from this other source. If there's only one thing you get, I pray that it's that. Because with that, you can leave this place and you can go through your life and you can start your own journey. But without that, you're on the hamster wheel. We want you to know that you're already perfect in your imperfection. Perfectly accepted. Perfectly loved. You're already God's favorite child. You're already God's best friend. He has an infinite number of favorite children and best friends. And if you just get that one thing, everything else will be added. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. Only because you love this first. Thank you, thank you, thank you for this good news. Thank you for everything that you have done to try to get it across to us. Help our unbelief. Help our fear of the risk that we feel in taking the first steps that would show us repeatedly that you are who you say you are. That you love as you say you love. Help us hear the effect to more perfectly do what we've set out to do, what we say we want to do, what we mean to do. Help us, first of all, to heal ourselves in you, to find that place, to refine that place, to redefine our own lives. Take the log out of our own eyes so that we can have anything to offer another person and to be present enough to be able to do that as well. 
That's what our community is for, Father. And we just ask that this year, this month, this day, that you would help us to rededicate more fully to that end. To love you more perfectly every day, every moment. To know more and more who you really are. And thereby know more and more who we really are. Father, we love you.